0: hello everybody and welcome to the law school lounge podcast this is a carolina academic press production where we discuss everything law school the law school lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law we hope you'll hang out with us for a while Hello, hello, and welcome to the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton. And I am excited to say that I was joined this week by Professor Laura Riley. She is the Director of Clinical Programs at UC Berkeley School of Law, and she is also the Carolina Academic Press author of Homeless Advocacy. Now, I won't dive too much into it because we talk at length about these points within the episode, but Laura's book is really the first of its kind. Homeless advocacy really takes a look at not just how to advocate for people who are experiencing homelessness through the realm of housing law, but also how to work with unhoused populations when they're your client for any type of case, in any type of circumstance, in any area of law. Laura and I also discuss different models that can be implemented when working with the unhoused population in the context of homelessness advocacy. We also talk about some solutions that are ideas or that have been implemented and how they've turned out. And Last but not least, and by no means the least important thing, Professor Riley talks a lot within the book and during our discussion about terminology and empathy and compassion and how those skills, those actions, are the most important thing when working with any population, and that includes those experiencing homelessness throughout the client, attorney, or other type of advocacy-based relationship. And so without further ado, I hope that our listeners really take something away from this episode. And I want to make clear that this episode is not targeted at just law students or law faculty. In fact, Laura's book is very much open for anyone who wants to be made more aware, learn more, or work in this space. And the book that she has created works well for those in undergraduate spaces, pre-law or otherwise. And everyone can take something away from this episode. So thanks so much for being here. We hope you appreciate our discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Law School Lounge. I am delighted and fortunate to be joined by our special guest, Professor Laura Riley from Berkeley Law, where she's the director of the clinical program for their law school. She also happens to be one of our incredible CAP authors. She writes our Homeless Advocacy course book and we're here to talk about not just the book but some of the really important issues that the book touches upon as well as strategies for working within the realm of homeless advocacy. So thank you so much for being here Professor Riley. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Crystal. And of course feel free to call me Laura. Um, I'm really excited to be here with you today.
0: Oh thank you. No, we're we're lucky to have you and you know I don't think that this particular topic gets enough attention. So I'm really glad that you brought this book out into the world, have done the incredible work that you've done, elevated the voices that you've elevated, and that we're going to be able to talk about it today.
1: Thanks. No, I mean, I agree that this issue doesn't have enough attention. And that was sort of one of the reasons that drew me to this area as as an area to write about. Um, You know, I started my practice in disability rights law and then moved into other areas of social justice law. And in every area that I worked in, I worked with unhoused people, but I had never received training or um, really any even cultural competency training or broader training on working with unhoused people. And I just thought that seemed to be a pretty big gap.
0: So it sounds like that was a major force behind why you decided to work on this book in the first place. Were there any other reasons that brought you to publishing this book with us?
1: Well, you know, I think part of it was just sort of trying to make it easier for people who um, were hoping to enter into social justice um, fields to have some sort of resource that I didn't have. And also, to make sure that the voices of people who had lived experience of being in-house were included in there, because I think that's also critical to understanding what advocacy pathways to to move into and to uh, to sort of um, innovate in. And so I think sort of the need that I felt that i that I didn't have, and then also sort of trying to, Inspire and explain how people can start innovating in these in these areas, and sort of think up other ways to advocate um, on behalf of and in collaboration with people who are unhoused. Um, I think that's that was really sort of the the two main reasons for for wanting to write this book.
0: If you don't mind, I would like to read a brief paragraph from the introduction to your book, because I think it encapsulates a lot of what you're talking about, but it also really meaningfully explains why this is so important to the legal system and its functioning and sort of people within a given community. So you have some sentences that read as follows. Unhoused people represent one of the most disadvantaged groups legally and politically in the United States. Not only are unhoused people extremely disadvantaged by virtue of experiencing homelessness, other historically marginalized groups in America are overrepresented within unhoused populations. Thus, homeless advocacy sits at the confluence of and must incorporate lessons from advocacy for nearly every disadvantaged class in America. An effective advocate must understand the legal and policy issues affecting unhoused people and also the unique socioeconomic factors affecting different groups within the unhoused population. And before that, you talk about equal justice under the law and how that is in forever history as part of the marble entrance of the Supreme Court. And I think this introduction is just so well done and so meaningful. It really sets the stage for a lot of the issues you talk about in the text.
1: Well, I really hope that people sort of don't see unhoused people as sort of a monolith or one population. You know, I whenever we work with clients or work with community groups, it's important to really understand who we're working with, um, especially if we haven't had the similar experiences of our own, that's particularly important. And so, and, and of course, some advocates have, but I personally have not. And so understanding the different groups that make up the populations that we're working with and um, what challenges they face, what historical you know, experiences the, the people before them have faced and um, will help inform how we might be able to work to help the future be a bit brighter. And so, yeah, I think. Um, understanding the different groups that make up these this population is is pretty critical and I think part of our education and or hopefully part of our education which is um, part like you like you described part of the reason that I included that piece in the introduction.
0: Before we kind of continue talking about this topic you know I noticed that the book is entitled Homeless Advocacy and then in the text there is a lot of use of homelessness as a particular verbiage or descriptor, and then use of unhoused population. You know, to make sure that I'm as well-educated as I can be as we continue to discuss these topics, how do you differentiate between those terms? Is there one that's preferred, and why might that be?
1: Yeah, well, you know, language evolves, and so I think that um, what I say now may not be the case in a couple of years. Um, mm. And I think that's okay, right? So what we just sort of do the best that we can in the moment that we're in. And um, there's still a lot of places that use the the term homeless or homelessness. Um, when describing a person, I think we tend now to want to not use the word homeless because it's sort of identifying that as part of who the person is, as opposed to a temporary state that's not caused by the person but that's caused by the systems and policies that they happen to be born into or raised into or um impacted by and so that's why you know I tend to not use the word homeless except for in the title where it's um the advocacy piece I think it's okay to use it there and so but there are a lot of Research papers and a lot of like data analysis that still uses that term, um, but I think for most of the book we you you know I use unhoused um, because it explains that it's I think it in, in you know implies that it's a temporary state of someone literally not having shelter at that moment in time and. I think, hopefully, it also implies the hope that that won't continue. And that's really, I think, the goal of advocates who work in that area is to sort of shift that state into something that um, can can sort of enrich their life in a way that they should have a right to anyway. Um, The other term that I think is completely fine to use is people experiencing homelessness. Um, uh, because again, it sort of shows that that's a a, a period of time and hopefully not something that defines someone or is is continuous. But that's just a little hard to use throughout the course of a book. It's just a bit clunky. So I tend to use the word unhoused or unhoused people.
0: No, thank you for that explanation. I appreciate it. It's something, one of the things that jumped out to me when I took a look at the book was Reflecting upon how homelessness as a term has been conflated to be an identity or a characteristic over time. And, you know, I had never honestly really thought about it through that lens, but it's definitely a fair assessment and a fair point. And so it makes sense to switch to a different term to kind of negate those negative thought processes associated with the original term. And, You're not the only person I've had that type of conversation with in this podcast. And so I appreciate your explanation and I appreciate that you talk about that in the book. And we'll talk about the history a little bit in a second. But before we get there, who did you write this book for? Because advocacy and advocates can be a large group of people. So who was your intended audience and how did you really see this book being used?
1: The primary audience for this book would be law students. But, I think that the hope in how it's written and structured is that it could also be used by advocates with a variety of backgrounds. so i i I hope that this is a book that could be helpful and informative for undergraduate students who are interested in various advocacy pathways. Um, potentially, you know, in sort of going in the legal studies direction, but not necessarily students who are interested in social work or graduate social work students um, or students who are interested in direct services of various kinds, including in some of the health fields and different health fields as well, because there's a lot of overlap in the approaches that advocates can, and I, I think arguably should use that is not constrained to law at all. And in fact, I think in um, in the you know legal academia and in the legal world, which is what I know best and what I'm a part of is, I think we can send a lot to learn from other disciplines. And so the hope, um, while not entire interdisciplinary, is to sort of bring in wisdom and knowledge and practices from other groups and see how we can use it in legal and policy and other advocacy avenues.
0: And I appreciate that. I think there's a lot of movement towards interdisciplinary approaches across the board when it comes to areas of the law, especially because we're finally starting to realize as a bunch of lawyers and law students that we're not working on a cloud of our own, that we have all of these other people that we can collaborate with to render the best services for our clients. So I think it's really Great that you took that approach here. Now, if you don't mind talking a little bit about sort of the structure of the book. So, I know we start with some history. I know we do talk about approaches in the book as well. So, what does that kind of look like as an overview?
1: Yeah, sure. And just before I get to the structure, I also just want to say, I think hopefully this is something that will be useful for practitioners too. So, you know, my, uh, and as I noted at sort of when we started talking, is that I sort of dove into a lot of this for the first time as a practitioner, you know, I had done some externships and some clinical work, but um, not enough to really sort of understand how this worked in practice. And so, um, uh, you know, I think people who practice in areas, say, outside of housing, still work with people who aren't house. You know, I never practiced housing law, but I worked with a lot of people who were, you know, how, who had housing instability or who are in a house. And so I think, Practitioners who work in different areas with these populations hopefully can have this as a bit of a background um, that could potentially help them work with their clients who have these experiences with a bit more cultural fluency.
0: It kind of ties back to what you said about how these things aren't really addressed directly within the law school classroom. And so it could meaningfully impact, I think, a lot of practitioners who just haven't necessarily thought of this before and find themselves in this situation for the first time. So when I was practicing, I practiced immigration law. And a lot of the people who go through the immigration court system are housing Unstable. They don't have necessarily an address that's consistent, or they are consistently changing their address, or they just use someone's address because they don't necessarily have a place to stay. And that really sort of not only impacts your attorney client relationship in a lot of different ways, but it also impacts your ability to work with that client within a system that is very much based on things like notice to an address or sending applications and putting information on forms or whatever the case may be. Right. And you're right. Before that, I guess I really hadn't thought about it all that much. I did some work in the immigration clinic at Loyola where I went to law school and those cases were vetted. And so for the most part, obviously not always, but for the most part, there was definitely some consistency among them. Right. We had a lot of information about them. Some of the cases had been going on for a very, very long time. And so I think, you know, you're just not exposed to it or you're so focused on the issues directly in front of you that you forget about all of these other components. And so, yeah, beyond a doubt, I could see why this book would be really helpful to practitioners.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the hope, you know, and that's why partly we tried, you know, I tried to bring in different uh, practitioner narratives, as well as narratives of folks who had experienced um, being unhoused to try and, I think, infuse it um, with, you know, stories and, um, and, and descriptions of, you know, different advocacy pathways from people in different practice areas, because I think that's sort of what is interesting about this as sort of, you know, an umbrella topic that unfortunately cuts across many areas of practice, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, um, are impacted. So, um, so we, so that is, I think, one feature of the book is having these narratives or these stories um, from both people who practice in different areas of law and advocacy, and then also people who have experience, lived experience of, of homelessness. So, that's sort of one feature, and they're sort of woven throughout the book, loosely tied to the chapter subject matter areas where they're in, um, to try and, I think, bring in how this comes into practice. Because really, the hope behind the book, and my hope is that everything in here can be tied to someone's current practice or someone's future future practice and sort of spark ideas for how they can engage with it. So. Yeah, so that's the first part is, is sort of those narratives that are throughout the book.
0: Right, right. And so, and I know you do some of the history and stuff up front to provide context. And I saw the narratives throughout. What other components are within the book or what other coverage do you want to emphasize?
1: Yeah. And so, there, there the first chapter is there's sort there of two sections to the book. One is sort of the state of homelessness um, and how to work with unhoused populations. And then the second is focused on sort of models of advocacy and potential solutions or pieces of solutions to um, sort of the issue of homelessness. And so that first um, part has a history of, of, of homelessness um, that was written by Maria Foscarinis, who's fantastic and really has been involved with a lot of the um, uh, the the advocacy sort of at the national and global level, and also some um, policy and litigation work. And so she sort of describes, I think, really nicely the history of of homelessness in the country and the root causes for it. And one thing I would just add, because of course, this is an ever evolving topic is adding to that is sort of where we are right now um, in homelessness in this country. So the the book is somewhat up to date in the sense you know it just came out, but also it's up to date because there's a bit of a lag always with sort of the data on um, on homelessness nationally. So right now we don't have the the 2023 data on how many people are unhoused nationally is not finalized. There are pockets of the country that have this data ready already, um, but it's not finalized nationally the main mechanism for how we um, count people who are unhoused are called point-in-time counts. And usually those occur, I I believe, in, you know, end of January, early February. Um, Mm. And that's sort of the primary source of data across the country because all communities that receive federal funding for um, homelessness services, conduct point in time counts, and so that's the majority of jurisdictions. So not not everywhere, but most places across the country. Got it. Um, and it's not a perfect measure. It's people going out into the community one or two nights, you know, in a, specific, a designated um, time frame, and literally counting who they see present um, in the different areas. So it, it so it's not a pull, foolproof strategy but it does I think show changes over time which is helpful. Um so the the last sort of data set that we have that is complete at this point is the 2022 figures and that shows that we have almost 600,000 people nationally who are unhoused. So it's wow. the figure the exact figure is 582,462 which shows that it was flat at over 2 years so there was there was no count actually in 2021 because of the pandemic mm-hmm. so the one prior to that was in 2020 which is right before um sort of the covid sh- shut down in, in march and so it shows that there was a uh, that it was flat from 2020 to 2022 which we can talk a little bit about why that might be but um that is good news that it's flat but you know, it's still a really, really, really high number. So that ends up looking at the entire population of the country. That's still 18 out of every 10,000 people. Um, So it's, we're still looking at huge numbers nationally and, you know, they're concentrated in, you know, a lot of um, urban areas and other, you know, in different parts of the country, but um, that's sort of where we are now and there you know there's a lot to say about sort of who makes who makes up that population and all that but then i think in addition to sort of the really nice history that maria lays out there's sort of this um data that ke- keeps on coming out annually um, nationally as well
0: and you said that there are sort of pockets of data that are already available do and forgive my ignorance on this but do cities regularly maintain this type of data in some way is that a data point that should be considered
1: yeah so a lot a lot of cities do come out with this with this data as well so where i worked out of for many years in los angeles the um, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority does come out with their own data set and then they're sort of aggregated. The, the different data sets that are submitted are aggregated to come up with sort of these national figures. So some of the cities do have finalized data for 2023, but not not all yet. Yeah, no, it's
0: great to know. I, I mean, as someone who I just moved out of New Orleans and and as someone who worked in a city, I feel like it's just important to know your city and its demographics and who who you're working with. And, and so that's mainly why I wanted to ask, because if you're looking to be informed, it seems like that would be a relatively good source, at least to start with, if it's more readily available.
1: Right, absolutely. And in fact, that can be a great volunteer opportunity for people too, so is to see which agency um, conducts the point in time count and volunteer to do oh. it. A lot of time, you know, when I've done it, what it involves is going in a car, usually with one other person and you're, you're assigned to a specific area and either by car or by foot, depending on how it's structured in your, your area, you actually kind of go around and, 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 and it's an interesting experience is difficult and there's ways, you know, of course they give you guidelines as to sort of how, how to, to go about doing it, but that can also be an interesting um, process to engage in.
0: Yeah, I never knew that. That is that is an interesting idea, um, you know, because I always think of shelters and and different other components, but that's a, a different and unique way to, to get involved in this. So I guess with kind of sort of where the information comes from and a little bit of talk about terminology, would you mind giving us a little more context about kind of how we got to where we are and what things kind of look like a little bit today?
1: yeah I mean, I think that there's so many factors, but I think part of it unfortunately is just sort of a lack of um funding for housing, of affordable housing. Um, so that I think is if we're gonna sort of focus in on one thing, it, that's sort of the main that's the main one. Um, and so that is really sort of unfortunately, uh well, unfortunately, unfortunately, because I think it's something that we could do something about. Um, but I think the other things to note are who are most impacted by, by homelessness. And that can show a little bit about maybe the, the background of this is there, there are a lot of populations that are disproportionately impacted by homelessness veterans, which is a group that I've worked with uh, quite a bit and people of color and particularly in particular black people. We have quite a number of people who are families with children. We, a lot of um, disproportionately children, the children who are um, unhoused are disproportionately LGBTQ plus. And so taking that population, for example, a lot of times they feel either disowned or have actively been disowned by their family. And so then leave and have nowhere to go and so that is sort of a i think a a population that we more recently in the past you know a couple of decades know is disproportionately impacted um by homelessness yeah so i think looking at who the people are who are impacted can reveal quite a bit
0: yeah and you talked a little bit about affordable housing it's interesting that now i think maybe because it's Near enough, but also farthest, far enough to in the past to actively look at housing laws from, you know, like redlining has been something that's been openly mm-hmm. discussed more and things of that kind of nature. But, you know, I affordable housing, especially after the pandemic, is I think at the forefront of everybody's minds. Um, and I think there are just more conversations about looking at. You know, there was the mortgage crisis, redlining, all of those things. But also, you know, I I teach about the Chinese Exclusion Act mm-hmm. in one of my courses, and most people are very confused when they find out that, you know, there was ex- essentially a blatant ban on giving housing to certain people, and then it went to the other way where you couldn't discriminate at all. And you know, we had this discussion recently. I talked to Renetta Mack. She is the author of our Unpacking Race in the American Jury System casebook. And we talked about how there's this point in time where when the law switches so differently from like one end of the spectrum, essentially embracing discrimination to the other end, that there are still people who are working within that system that, only know the former system of discrimination. And so to assume that they're able to just kind of take that hat off and just all of a sudden not discriminate or enforce the law. And I think housing is one of those areas where those things were a problem, but no one ever really talked about them or nobody's ever really thought about them in that lens. Is that fair? Or is that something that you've seen or sort of the evolution of housing law in general?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I wanted to ask you to say more about sort of what you were saying about sort of taking the hat off and sort of putting it aside—were were you mention Were you thinking of sort of the person who was impacted by the the discriminatory laws beforehand, or the people who sort of were the gatekeepers to the to the housing initially?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Okay, was- yeah, I, mostly I was talking about the people involved in the system itself in terms of now enforcing this new law that has changed to be something completely different, Um, you know, because we come into these systems thinking that we have impartial arbiters or impartial judges. (laughs) And, you know, to think that these people are just able to, like a switch, think differently is not necessarily realistic. Um, And you also have to think about who wrote the laws, and what hat were they wearing when they wrote the laws, and all of those types of questions. Um, and you're also right to say, because we we talked about this as well, you know, being the juror who's now in the system and expected to perform as a juror, like, what do you do? Uh, what does that look like? How do you feel? Do you feel safe? Those types of questions. And I'd imagine it's the same thing in this. It's, there was a, you know, we talked in the beginning about The descriptor of homeless and what that meant as a characteristic, and I could see when something like that switches, people are like, "Oh, well, that's like a handout," or that's they're ascribing attributes to that person um, once they're able to get maybe these new benefits or these new programs that are now open to them. So I think it's probably I started out talking about the system and the people in it, (laughs) but I think you're (laughs) fair to say it's probably both people or everybody involved.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 yeah, I thought that was interesting because I think it probably is everyone involved and sort of how do we shift to 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 improved circumstances and improved systems and how do we sort of shift enough that it's actually working, you know? Um and I think your example is exactly right, you know, of redlining and some of these laws shifting um you know is looking at sort of who historically in this country has had access to property and then you know housing you know later on and of course you know black americans have been historically excluded for for years and years and years and years and years and so then like you said even when we have laws that shift um are the are the property owners doing workarounds to sort of continue excluding people and certain groups of people from, from access to housing. Of course that, that has happened and, you know, may continue to happen. There's also then the, the reality that even if it has shifted sort of the, if the law has shifted, we still don't have sort of this generational wealth or generational assets, you know, generational wealth, that term makes it sound like, you know, we're handing over millions of dollars from one generation to the next, but I'm just thinking like some equity in a home, you know, um, that may not be a lot, a lot of money, but sort of secures someone position and avoids housing instability. Um, And so when we sort of take that away and, or it hasn't been present, then there's sort of impact across generations for what people have access to as far as housing. And it means that, you know, for example, someone who's just above the the Medicaid um, eligibility line, which is very, very low um, in almost every state has some big medical bills. And then all of a sudden they can't pay rent. And then where do they go? You know? So, I think right this the stigma that you you mentioned sort of at the end is is very real because we sort of have these stories I think in part from media and in part just from um unfortunate imagination and lack of experience being with and understanding people who are unhoused of what it means to be unhoused and what it means um uh, what it reflects of someone if someone is unhoused, um, and I think a lot of those assumptions are are really false, and and sort of don't look at sort of how people are set up for you know maybe not failure but but a sort of a failure of opportunity.
0: Well, and you touch upon this as well in the book a little bit, but this concept of relating moral failure to these types of concepts Mm -hmm. in the book in particular, you talk about sort of the moral stigma around drug use, which Mm -hmm. does intersect with homelessness, right? Or being part of the unhoused population. But I think that's a really big part of it, right? You attach this as like a moral Mm -hmm. failing as a, you deserve this because you didn't work hard enough or like those kinds of things are kind of ingrained, unfortunately, I think into our culture. I think hopefully that's beginning to shift, but I do think that that is where it comes from. And if you think about it, like the American dream, right? Like lift yourself up by your bootstraps and go, if you just work hard enough, you can have the things you're supposed to have and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's like, ingrained in our very fabric of of our country. So I could see how those things would be, obviously, those are big things to overcome, not that it's not. And I think your book is doing a great job of of starting that conversation. But in my opinion, anyway, and from my very limited knowledge, you know way more about this than I do. But that's where I can kind of see it. So because I brought up the sort of drug use and and people who have um, substance abuse disorder, where does the unhoused population also intersect? We talked about race, right? We talked about children. As are there any other sort of intersections?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, for as many identities as exist, there are intersections with uh, you know people who are unhoused, you know, and so I think that's important to remember. Um, I think you know one thing that comes up with uh, you know the sort of the example of sort of drug use is. I mean, I I think one sense is, you know, maybe mental health disabilities um, and the lack of treatment and services. Um, But also I think, you know, years and years of, you know, misinformed policy that had required um, people to get treatment before they were eligible for housing um, or any subsidies, you know, connected to housing. Um, So that's, That's a huge problem. And I think there's a lot of really damaging messaging that came along with that, that sort of fed into this moralistic framing of what it means to be unhoused. Um, And that was part of the reason uh, to include the second chapter on foundational principles of sort of how some, you know, best practices or sort of ways that we can, um, think through working with unhoused people. And the one that sort of ties most directly to that is harm reduction. Um, so harm reduction is really sort of a, a set of humane approaches that is sort of based in the realities of people's experience uh, that require providers, you know, you know, legal services providers, health and human services providers, and others to meet clients where they are. Um, And so that often means reducing the harmful effects in engaging in harmful uh, health behaviors instead of only aiming to eliminate the harmful health behavior itself. So, for example, you know, in syringe exchange programs, there is an implicit acknowledgement that someone is probably using drugs, but you're making sure that you're reducing the harm that they're experiencing in doing so. And then the other, I think really important example that's related to homelessness is sort of the one that we sort of just alluded to, which is not requiring treatment or sobriety before providing housing. Um, it's not the right order. You know, we know it's not the right order. there's There's a lot of studies showing it's not the right order, but I think it you know, you know trying to trying it the other way sort of appeals to sort of the negative and false assumptions that people have about people who are unhoused including things like they people don't want to work when in fact we know that most people who are in house do want to work and there are a lot of barriers to being able to do so. Um, so there's sort of the harm reduction is one of the foundational principles. The other is housing first, which is the opposite of treatment first. And so it's sort of centering this need for housing, right? It seems so clear when we say it out loud, but basically what it does is it takes away conditions for housing um, and prioritizing people's immediate need for permanent housing and sort of taking away the barriers to to accessing it. So that is really, I think, the most important thing uh, of all. And then the others are trauma-informed care and client-centered advocacy as well.
0: Well, and I know you also have in the book a talk of criminalization of homelessness. So how does that fit into these approaches you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in, in so many ways, but one that sort of ties really closely to what we just talked about is um, sort of, for example, the Ban the Box campaign, which I think was a really, really powerful um, example of advocacy in this area, is um, really you know, in, in a lot of job applications, there are and but used to be much more so. There would be a box that asks about people's criminal history. Of course, what that does is it means that a lot of people who are otherwise qualified for positions are taken out of the running because people get nervous about what that means, um, and they sort of create you know stories around what that could mean for someone's. Uh, capability in the role. And so taking that away can actually sort of set aside someone's criminal past since if they're able to apply for the job, it means that it is in the past um, and sort of allows for a pathway forward for people and facilitates people doing what they would want to do, which is to work and to sort of help, you know, provide for their own housing and other ways of well-being.
0: And we talked a little bit about these different models. And we talked now about criminalization and related to employment, which I know is also a big moving piece here. But what other sort of solutions might you see moving forward? Or what other kinds of areas do you see where there could be a solution? It's maybe not
1: there yet. I think veterans, you know, in a a group that I've worked with quite a bit, you know, I think most of us, even if we haven't, um, serve personally, I think, can sort of understand the risks and hopefully the duty that we might have as a society to veterans. And so there have actually been some areas that ha- you know, some jurisdictions that have successfully eliminated homelessness for veterans because they've really focused on providing mental health care support. And importantly, in this in in with this specific population, is. Making sure that there are people who are helping link veterans to the services that they do qualify for through the VA, the veterans administration and and other other groups. So I think that there have been success stories there in sort of, you know, in certain areas, um not nationally, but I think you know, in in certain areas there have been, which is which is great. Um, and so I think one of those is just sort of prioritizing it making sure that we, you know, but I think that is sort of the danger is, is sort of thinking of certain people as more deserving than others. It goes
0: back to what we were talking about earlier, right? You know, this idea, like, do you deserve it? Is it moral? Are you moral? Like all those questions? Yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that we can think of and actualize housing being a human right, you know, internationally and then domestically as well, because ultimately that's, um, you know, if we establish it as a right, then that's, that would, I think, hopefully propel us to sort of come up and be innovative, but I don't think we have to wait for them to, to, to sort of, to, to work on different pathways. You know, I think, um, There are definitely pieces of the solution that we know about and I think can work on now. I'll I'll talk about a few. So one, I think is, you know, Adele Nicholas is one of our practitioner narratives in the book, and she's uh, a, a litigator and advocate in Chicago. And she's done a number of cases sort of impact litigation cases around different sort of constitutional issues um, relating to people who are unhoused. So things like uh, in Chicago they they had ordinances that prohibited people from obstructing bridges <laughs> um, in as sort of a way to harass and ticket people who are unhoused. Um, and also there was a prohibition of panhandling, which you know is is, is how do you define that and how do you enforce that? Um, and in her in her narrative, she talks, I think, really nicely about how even law enforcement, just hate enforcing some of these ordinances because it doesn't seem commonsensical. It doesn't seem like there's an alternative to, you know, how are we, what are we going to do to help people then? Um, Where are we going to put people then? Um, All it does is it moves the problem around and becomes sort of like a political slogan or way to rally support before an election. But anyway, she talks a lot about sort of her impact litigation cases And then, you know, being able to set precedent with that so that, you know, if another issue comes up where it sort of seems clear that an ordinance is unconstitutional, then the burden of the advocate becomes lower if you have a decision in your favor. And then she talks about how she worked with the ACLU to sort of write a letter to the city saying, you know, we think this particular ordinance is unconstitutional, and then it was repealed before a a legal matter had to be brought before a court. So I think, you know, I do, I don't think litigation should be used for everything. But I do think that that is a pathway that can be really helpful. And, you know, if done thoughtfully can sort of help create helpful precedent. So that's one way is sort of what we think of as sort of a very traditional, you know, uh, legal advocacy pathway, impact litigation. Sarah Rankin and Natia Rond contributed the appendix to the book, which is an article that they wrote with a team on accessory dwelling units, um, which is a really interesting project, I think. I had never heard of it until I looked at this and until I've spoken with
0: you. And so please, please talk more about it because I think a lot of people and not enough people know about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're called accessory dwelling units or ADUs. And I thought it was an interesting report to include in the book as sort of a, a sort of a really well-researched and um, well explained possible model for a, a piece on how to reduce homelessness. Right, so it's a basically a, a a little house or a little um unit that's built in someone's on someone's property that can then be rented out. You know, often to people who have Section Eight vouchers or who have you know eligibility for subsidized housing. Um, and there are different sort of ways that this is developed in different jurisdictions. And so they describe how to think through the logistical and legal considerations. And then they ex- give sort of four case studies in different jurisdictions on how they handled that um, and sort of how they paired people up with the the agencies that give out the, the the housing vouchers and how they work with landlords, how they work with tenants, what the messaging is like, what policies need to be in place to make it possible. And so it's, it's I think, a really nice example of how we can sort of make some headway into providing affordable housing for people because some of it's just about supply, right? Like there's just not enough supply of affordable housing in most areas, um, in most urban areas at least. Um, so sort of figuring out a piece of that without necessarily massive construction, um, which we probably need as well, but sure. this is sort of a, a one example. So that, that was an interesting project that they, that they introduced as, As part of the appendix. So that's one. And then this is another litigation example, but I think it's interesting because it's happening right now. So I'm, and there, there are a few different versions of this type of lawsuit going on, but this, this one is uh, a current litigation that's based in San Francisco, which is nearby where I'm, where I'm based right now. And it's the, it's called the coalition on homelessness versus the city and county of San Francisco and it involves San Francisco the city's criminalization of homelessness and destruction of property of people who are unhoused and where it is is that in December 2022 so i guess almost a year ago now there was a preliminary injunction preventing San Francisco from arresting people for sitting and sleeping in public where when they have no realistic access to shelter or housing. Uh, So, yeah, so this sort of stemmed from a Ninth Circuit decision, uh, Martin v. Boise, bringing up different facts. And so we'll see. see, I see. We'll see where it goes. I mean, I think, you know, it's really an acknowledgement that criminalizing homelessness in some ways can be, you know, not just offensive to people's dignity, but also unlawful. And so um, we'll see where that goes. But that's something that's that's ongoing now. And I think different areas of the country are looking to
0: it's so interesting to hear you know as and like I said I lived in a city and now I guess I technically live in another city but it doesn't feel like a city but anyway my point is just that it's interesting how the situation for people who are unhoused changes so much from one city to another in terms of what resources they might have available to them in terms of their safety or criminal issues that could arise, criminalization you mentioned. So do you have any cities in mind or do you talk about any cities in the book that maybe are getting it right? based on, or at least doing things in the right direction that are having a positive impact. Because I do know, you know, from just basic reading, please know that it's just basic reading, but (laughs) that, you know, all of the cities, especially in California where you're located, they're kind of all doing a little bit of a different thing, or I should say the West Coast. So like you have Seattle and you have Portland and you have different cities in California who are particularly having a lot of issues with affordable housing right now, which of course has seemingly, I guess we'll find out for sure next year, increased the unhoused populations within those locations. And so, you know, at this point, they're kind of forced to come up with to do something. So have any cities done anything that you're aware of that seems promising, at least in this regard at this point?
1: Well, I think one thing that's happened nationally and to larger extents in certain counties um, because of COVID and hopefully we'll learn some lessons from this, you know, as we study this, you know, over the past couple of years and maybe as things change is we had, you know, national eviction moratoriums and then we had county eviction moratoriums that continued beyond the national one. And that is huge Right. Because that means that people who couldn't work um, or, you know, because of COVID related, you know, issues and therefore couldn't pay their rent or couldn't pay the entirety of their rent, weren't made to become unhoused. You know, they were still unstable and I'm sure had a lot of stress and concern about it, but weren't being evicted. And that is huge to think about. How is that sustainable? What could we do to make sure that there are fewer evictions? Does that mean, for example, providing a right to counsel so that we, which some areas have done, you know, um, like New York is how can we, you know, in, in eviction proceedings specifically, because of course the success rate of preventing evictions is much higher if someone has legal counsel available to them, which in most areas they do not. Um so I think places that are considering a right to counsel in eviction proceedings that's a huge step in the right direction and then of course there was rental assistance that came out of the federal government during COVID and there were more federal housing vouchers that were given out that you know really helped secure or at least contributed to the sort of the strength of the safety net during that period so looking at how can we make sure that we are we continue that in certain situations so maybe not in sort of such a widespread manner but how can we look at that and see how we can learn some lessons going forward in in specific jurisdictions and 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 you know tailor it to to what the people need in in different areas
0: so i don't think i've gotten to mention this to you but um So, I owned a home in New Orleans and it was a double. So, I lived in half, and for some of the time, I rented out the other half. When I bought the house, I had a tenant, and then that tenant moved on. And then I got another tenant, and then my parents moved in eventually because they wanted to snowbird from New Jersey during the winter. Uh, But blame them. Yeah. I know. I know. It was much better weather in the winter in New Orleans, at least in the winter anyway. But yeah. So, it, I do have like kind of an interesting perspective. I felt that that whole experience was really eye opening for lots of different reasons. One reason was when I was setting rent, I was like, there's just no, I can just set whatever I want it mm-hmm. to be. <laughs> and if it's too high, that just means I don't get a renter. Like there's no, you know what I mean? The market kind of sets itself which I think a lot of people don't maybe realize that's how it works. (laughs) Or if they do realize, they don't really get it until they're in that position. I think another thing is too, is I was very readily warned, like really hope you never have to evict anyone because it's absolutely a horrible process and you will have someone living there for months without paying any rent. And like for me at the time when I bought my house, I needed the rent to cover my mortgage. So, you know, that was like... Eventually, I didn't, but you know, when I first bought my house, I did. <laughs> and so that was a real, I was very nervous about that. I was like, oh gosh, I, yeah. I don't know what. Cause then at that point, if I can't pay the mortgage and you can't pay a rent, then nobody has anywhere to live. <laughs> so, like, that's a problem. Right. But it, it's just an interesting, and obviously, right now I'm renting. So I've been a renter, but I, I just think it's an interesting sort of, relationship that a a Mm -hmm. lessor and a lessee or a renter and a rentee have um, because it really is very much self-regulated until someone's forced to go to court and in that situation there's a lot of (laughs) things at play by the time you finally get to that stage like it I don't know it, it was just a really interesting experience and so I hope that everybody tries to consider all of the perspectives because, you know, obviously I was just a little homeowner with one little rental. I'm not like a multimillionaire business with like lots of rentals, but you know, my housing stability was dependent upon my renter for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I don't know, I don't know why I bring this up. I just bring it up to say that, you know i think there's there's just so many moving parts and nobody is really involved until it's at its worst right i think if something could be done up front that that might alleviate a lot of the problems like a renter would be more inclined to rent to someone if they knew that that person had some sort of rental assurance if goodness forbid they got really sick or they had you know lost their job you know like whatever the case may be that would Open up, I think, a renter's willingness to rent to people, you know because another thing is too, is like I know some people set rent really high because they want a certain type of tenant, right, like those types of things so and you would see around New Orleans, you would see signs like no section eight or whatever, which I don't even know if that's legal. I don't know, <laughs> but if it is, that's a problem uh. If it's not, then that's also a problem because people are still doing it anyway. So it's just a really, there's a lot of moving parts. And and I think that that's why I wanted to ask about actual like concrete cor- sort of like what people are doing now that sees some sort of results. Because I think once people hear more about that, they might feel more confident in trying to push those results or those solutions forward, if that makes any sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, you draw some distinctions that are important, you know, like someone who's a landlord who has one unit that they're renting out versus, you know, like a, a a management company that is leasing an entire apartment building and there are, you know, 100 units and they own, you know, 10 of these buildings in the same area. I mean, the the impact of one person not paying rent is very different for those two, you know, and so hopefully policies and how they figure out vouchers you know, accounts for that, right? And I mean, I think part of the ADU appendix that they talk about sort of the different legal and and logistical uh, factors to consider, part of it's also, you know, both tenant and landlord education around how do you make it work when you are accepting, you know, subsidies, housing subsidies, and how what's the guarantee around that? And what does that mean? Because of course it's, it's unfamiliar, you know? And so making sure it's clear and also making people feel comfortable, um, is, is, is really important, you know? Well, there's sort of
0: like anybody can buy a house that's got a double and right. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't have, I was never, I was like, I mean, I think when I bought my house, I must've been like 29. Like I was young when I bought my house. And sure, I had a law degree, but like I had no experience. I was just a person who was now a landlord. You know what I mean? It's not like, and the same thing when you rent, like, you know, you get a boilerplate agreement and you're like, all right, I'll just, you know, I got to need, I need somewhere to live. Like, there's just not a whole lot of discussion about sort of what that relationship looks like, what Mm -hmm. it requires, you know? So I think education would be a really unique aspect of, of that. And I think getting more people involved in the area of housing equity would be really important in that regard too, as far as like educating people on what housing equity means and what that looks like.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: But if you don't mind, I know we started out part of this conversation talking about how you hoped that whether in law school or out of law school and practitioners, that they would take something away from this book. So if you had one thing that they could take away, what would it be?
1: That they should be able to write part two of this book, you know, and I don't know what it would say yet. And that is my hope is that the takeaway um, is we have not figured out all the ways to, you know, solve this complex issue of homelessness. Um, And I think we know some fundamental things like we need to provide housing. I mean, that's sort of first and foremost. Um, How do we do it? how does it depend and vary based on region, the people who are impacted, you know, the politics at play in your area will really matter a lot. Um, so I think what I really hope people people take away is that um, this is an area that needs creativity, needs attention, needs, you know, at ad- passionate advocates. Uh, and so I hope that, people sort of take this up and can can sort of incorporate that into any form of work that they that they go into.
0: I appreciate that. And my last question for you if you don't mind as a professor or somebody working in a legal clinic you know right now there's a lot of talk around ABA particularly standard 303 so professional identity, cross cultural competency how do you see what you talk about in this book and the skills that it offers intersecting with those types of requirements that law schools are seeing now?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, initially when I designed a class around this book, it was for undergraduates actually because I sort of wanted to um have people starting to think about this pre-law and, you know, even or pre pre-grad school or pre, you know, practicing outside of the law um but as far as you know 303 and professional identity I and mean, i think that um whenever we can understand experiences outside of our own and see how not just the black letter law but the different ways to practice law and the different populations we will practice law amongst and for and with i think that's critical and I think this would really help um, develop some of that fluency and competencies. And it's a set of competencies. It's not just, you know, um, you know, one, there's one path or one way to work with people who are unhoused. It's sort of looking at intersectional identities, you know, intersections of experiences and sort of understanding how working with people who are unhoused can help benefit people who are working in various social justice areas and and outside of that as well. And I think that that can help people who are hoping to work in social justice law, law legal areas full-time or who know that they want to take on pro bono work, even if they're working in the private sector, which is extremely valuable as well.
0: Well, if you don't mind me saying, at a minimum, I feel like these sort of all these discussion topics and all the things we've talked about, they emphasize kindness and empathy and, and all of those things that, you know, not only make you a better advocate, but quite frankly, a a better person. So (laughs) I think everybody should embrace these things that your, your, your themes that you've talked about throughout and sort of these skills, because, you know, that's what we should be aiming for. Right. So I think that covers it on my end, Laura, but was there anything else that you wanted to touch upon that we didn't get to?
1: No, thanks so much, Crystal. It's been so lovely chatting. I think, you know, I think, yeah, empathy as a skill is important, right? Not just as, you know, a state, but as a skill. And so I think figuring out how we turn empathy into action is the key.
0: Yeah, emotional intelligence. It's one of the the important things. I've always talked to my paralegal students about it because they, and I actually think they would really find your work very meaningful as well because they work with the clients a lot. And so, you know, I always tell them about emotional intelligence and how to incorporate that into their daily lives and, and the work that they do. And your book is full of that. So I appreciate everything that you've, you've done. And I look forward to seeing what you do next.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much, Crystal. It was so nice chatting with you. I appreciate it.
0: Figuring out how we turn empathy into action. I think that just might be one of my favorite quotes and pieces of information or action items given on this podcast to date. And as this is our final episode for 2023, I think it's a really important takeaway to keep in mind. Obviously, within the context that we're speaking of here, homeless advocacy, but also beyond. It's a good sentiment to take into the new year. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you gained some insights and information from this episode. This is definitely a topic that can warrant further research, particularly as we talked about at the top of the episode. New data points are set to come out next year. So definitely take a look at that and try to analyze that data through the lenses that we cover in this episode. We'd love to hear from you about this episode or otherwise. So connect with us on social media. You'll find us on X and Instagram at Law School Lounge. And please give us a five-star review if you're able on any platform. It really helps boost the show. Thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate you. Everyone at Carolina Academic Press and me as the host of the Law School Lounge, we wish you the happiest of holidays and the best in the new year. We'll catch you in 2024.